the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. Bibles are open, I want to begin reading to you chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, and this is the event of the healing of a man at the pool of Bethesda. Now, as I read through that, it'll help you understand how it's linked together because there's some backstory to that. So let me begin reading at verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. If not, you can wait until we pick up the primary text that is in your um, worship folder this morning. Verse 1 says this, John writing, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews, And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos or porches. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then went first after the stirring up of the water stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, for some, that might sound a little odd, an angel coming and stirring up water. Let me encourage you to go back and get that tape that I have recorded, and it'll explain what that really meant. But let's go on in verse 5. By the porch, there was a man that had been ill for 38 years. That's a long time, and it's indicative that he probably wasn't born this way, but for 38 years, he was this way. Verse 6, it says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the water when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Now I want to get into some new material because we ended right there when I went through that part of the story. And let's pick it up because we want to learn how to have a transformed life because something happened immediately. But what will happen now to a continued walk with the Lord? So verse 9, after Jesus says, get up, pick up your pallet or mat and walk, it says immediately the man became well and he picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. I'll comment on that in a moment. So the Jews were saying to the man who is cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing things on the Sabbath. Well, I'm going to stop there because the next time we meet, 
Next week, I want to talk about how that Jesus is God and so that some of you that are probably bombarded at your door by people that often question that Jesus, is he really God? Is he, or is he just another God or just a mighty God? I want to talk about that next week. But I do want to talk about the fact that when we trust Christ as Savior, we can begin to have what is known as a transformed life, an immediate transformed life. And I want to speak to that because some of you probably can think of people that when they trusted Christ, their life so changed. Others of you might think of someone who trusted Christ as Savior and as much as you know is a genuine faith conversion, but they kind of bumped along and they really struggle with that transformed life. And maybe you'd like to know, maybe why is that the case? I believe from this passage I can extrapolate some principles and then take you to other passages of Scripture to help you understand it, but mostly to help you to have a continued changed life with the Lord. Recently, I was reading the, the background of the biography of someone that most people today have heard of. His name is Chuck Colson. Now, some of you that are young and you're not knowing the name Chuck Colson, he really came on the map in the late 60s and the early 70s, and he really became prominent during what was known as the Watergate scandals during our president, President Nixon at the time. He was known as Nixon's hatchet man. So while he worked with the guys to get involved in doing some very devious things in the government, really at the call and the understanding of Nixon, Nixon then had him be the one that really had to kind of pull the trigger. Well, during that particular time, God was really working on him. And some of you could even go back in your own history. You remember that you were lost, but certain things were starting to happen in your life. You began to soften and maybe start thinking about God and eternal life and salvation and your relationship with God or maybe even the hereafter. Well, that was happening with him. So during the course of it, it came to light that he was a part of a team and he was about ready to be indicted. And during that indictment time, but before they actually convicted him, a friend handed him a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. He began to read this book, and through that book, he understood that Christianity is valid in truth and that it is superior. It is the only life to not only believe but to live as well found in Jesus Christ. So he trusted Christ, and very soon after that, he was convicted and that he was put in prison. And while he was in prison, he had a voluminous amount of time then to feed that moment where he was transformed, that instant when he trusted Christ as Savior. In fact, it was such a, an impression upon his mind that he followed the teaching of Scripture that we've already covered here in John. He was born again. In fact, he wrote a book and there was a movie after that as well. While he was in jail, he was growing more and more. And unbeknownst to him, someone came across some of his dad's early writings in a journal. He did not know this before. And in those writings, his dad had a private personal commitment to, oddly enough, prison reform and see so he acquired that writing of his dad in his little journal and while he was in prison he realized that true prison reform is not going to happen through merely doing a whole new set of laws and re-educating and rehabilitating people by a lot of other outside sources but the true rehabilitation comes when a person on the inside has a true transformation by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone So while he was in prison, he started carrying the burden for fellow inmates, for family members, for those that were in jail or now out. And he said the best way to reach them is for them to be born again. And when he got out, he began a ministry called Prison Fellowship, which today is arguably the largest and the most effective prison ministry in the world. But that wasn't enough because he realized that he can work with these guys and gals that have these struggles. But often they went into that because they had what is known as a secular worldview. And so he realized that there is what is known as a biblical worldview. 
And so then he began to embrace scripture. He wanted to know what is the biblical worldview. And so he developed an entire ministry, and it's called the Chuck Colson Center for Biblical Worldview. And so then he wanted to rechange the minds of people by telling them what is the truth of scripture. In fact, he was at a biblical worldview conference when he was standing delivering the keynote message that he felt weak, he crumpled to the floor, and shortly thereafter, he passed from this life into heaven doing the very thing that he wanted to do. Now, there's two things about that story of Chuck Colson. One, it was a clear teaching of God's word by faith alone that was brought to him who at that moment had a fertile mind that God had prepared where he was instantly transformed by faith in Christ, he was born again. And then soon after that, he then had a continual transformed life because he allowed God's word to continually transform him. Now we're going to see some truths as I try to take it from this passage to maybe help you or to help others to not only have that born again instant change, but perhaps even have a changed life thereafter because God doesn't want us merely to have fire insurance with our eternal life. He wants us to have an intimate walk with him until we can be completely with him when we're in heaven. Well, with those truths in mind, I'd like to maybe talk about that for just a moment. So you might want to take out your worship folder and follow along with me. As I went through this passage, I can see why there are some preachers that they want to preach God's word and they they want to make it cute. And they come up as they look through this and they say, well, Jesus talked, the man walked, and the Jews squawked. And that's their three-point message and that's the end of it. And it is true. Jesus did talk to the guy. He said, get up, pick up your mat in verse 8. Verse 9, the man did walk in verse 9. And then in verse uh, 15, it says here, it says, um, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus. So again, they squawked. But I have to tell you that there is so much richness in this entire passage of Scripture. Now listen, especially as you take this passage and you open it up to the context of Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the whole idea. In fact, what you're going to find, the most prevalent of all of this, is that when the Jews wanted to attack Jesus, probably their centermost point of issue was Jesus' relationship to the Sabbath. And of course, that then sent the Jewish people, and they went absolutely nuts. So with that, I'd like for you to follow along with me and maybe get some truths on decisions to assure the changed life. The first one is we must reject what is known as legalism. Now, I'm happy to know that in this church, most of you know a lot about legalism because you've been taught. But for those that haven't been, I'd like you to follow along because legalism is insidious. If it will keep you from trusting Christ because it is a way to set up religious rules or laws to follow in order to be saved, that'll keep you lost. If it's not that, if you do get saved by faith alone, then legalism steps in immediately and it then wants to tell you that you have to keep laws and rules and all these things in order to be spiritual, which then will choke you and deaden you because the Spirit of God then is not alive working through you because you've embraced the rules and the laws. So I want you to understand something about legalism. So if you will, let me go back for just a moment and read verse 9 through verse 12 so you can feel what's happening here in this part of the passage. Verse 9 says, Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. That was the instant transformation. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. That is not an incidental comment. That is almost a standalone truth so that it kind of wakes you up. It's a spotlight on all this. Verse 10 says, So the Jews were saying to the man who is cured, follow along, it is the Sabbath, and it is not 
permissible for you to carry your pallet. Now, when I read through that, I thought, that is amazing. Don't you think that a person who is of some spiritual mind, like these Jews or Pharisees were, that they would look at a man who was lame for 38 years. And if you remember when we taught it, he wasn't just lame 38 years. He had no one to take him into the water, so he was a lonely, dirty, filthy man who was neglected by family, friends, and society, broken for 38 years. And so Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. And what do the Jews? They don't simply say, oh, you've been healed. This is great news. Let's celebrate. There was a man who couldn't walk. Now he can walk. Now he can go on with his life and live a productive life. All they wanted to know is, who told you you could pick up that mat on the Sabbath day? That's against the law. Now, for me to explain this to you is very important. Because some of you know a little bit about the Sabbath. You know the little phrase, it's the Sabbath and keep it holy and don't work on the Sabbath. And you might know some of your neighbors or friends that don't go to church on Sunday because they want to use Saturday as the Sabbath. Well, I wish I had a couple of Sundays just to teach you from Genesis to Revelation what the Bible had to say about the Sabbath. But I'm going to try to give it to you in a Reader's Digest version so you can feel what legalism was all about. It is true Keeping the Sabbath was one of the Ten Commandments in the Decalogue. It was huge. Secondly, the concept of keeping the Sabbath so special is found over and over again in the Old Testament. It's found in Exodus, Leviticus, Ezekiel, Nehemiah, Jeremiah, to just name a few. And I'd like to toss out to all of you, get yourself a good Bible concordance and follow all the verses on the Sabbath. But when you do, read the context. And yes, you'll find it that we are to do no work on the Sabbath of any kind. But when you put all the verses together, it does not mean that on the Sabbath you find a tree, you park yourself there for some 12 to 24 hours and do absolutely nothing. When you read it in context, it is true. Your world is to come to a screeching halt. Also in context, it was done more for that you would do no work that would bring in an economy to you. So in other words, the carrying of the mat, pallet or the mat, watch this, would have broken the Sabbath law if the man was carrying the pallet because that was his job to take it into the city then and sell pallets on the Sabbath. That would have been wrong. But to pick up the pallet was not something that was wrong. As I was doing research behind this whole passage, I found that there are 39, watch this, rabbinical principles regarding the Sabbath that if you broke those, you are breaking the Sabbath. Now, there's an operative word there. It's the word rabbinical laws. That does not mean they were biblical laws. They were laws that the rabbis put forth to say, this is what it means to keep the Sabbath. So what they did is they took the kernel of the truth of the Sabbath and then they added man's laws on top of that. And then they began to embrace man's laws far above what that biblical law was all about. Let me read to you Matthew chapter 15. This is a very interesting verse because it talks about how that's easy to happen. Verse 8, Jesus speaking, he says, This people, referring to the Jews, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me. Here it is teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. In other words, they were taking what man wrote, not what God wrote, and they were now teaching what man wrote as doctrine. So in vain they were worshiping him because they weren't worshiping him in 
truth, but in what man had written. And that's part of the crux of this whole deal here. And that's what legalism really does. Maybe I'd ask you, do you know some people today that are maybe living a life under legalism where that they have followed some great Christian writings and these Christian writings have often taken the place of what the Bible has to say and they're steeped in that type of thing. And you'll find that there are a lot of Pharisees that are out there that often will do that. Let me see if I can help define legalism for you. Legalism is trying to be closer to God by making and keeping a list of rules and regulations. Legalism is trying to be closer to God by making, and I I want to add this, and keeping a list of rules and regulations. And the rules and regulations often are well-meaning. They're often written by Christians, and they're often found in Christian literature, and they're meaning because they want you to be better for the Lord, but often they do not teach it in such a way as to let people know that this is man's writing to help you understand some things, but it's not clear teaching, as thus saith the Lord. Now, there's two truths about legalism that you might want to know. I try to say it as simply as possible, and I hope this might help you. Legalism blinds us to the miraculous work of God. Legalism blinds us to the miraculous work of God. Let me show you how that can happen for salvation. Here you have a person who is telling a lost person that what you need to do is to do good deeds, keep the Ten Commandments, and they give you a whole list of laws to keep. Now what happens, this person now tries to keep these things. And all of a sudden, as we're trying to keep these things, we now are looked upon as a person who has lived a great life. Look at how good that person is. Look at how moral that person is. Look at how religious that person is. And what's happened then is God is left out of this and most certainly the Holy Spirit is left out of this because there really is no miraculous work of God. Now that's in the getting saved stage because they never were saved. It's just man doing good deeds to get to heaven. Now, for those that want to be spiritual, if they want to have legalism, they then think, all right, in order for me to be spiritual, I need to do, and they list out all the things. You need to pray this way. You need to pray at this time. You need to pray this long. You need to go to that kind of fellowship these many days. You need to be involved in these kind of ministries. This is how you're to read your Bible. So many minutes, so many hours, so many books. You've got to do it this way. And so what happens then, the person is doing this, And we really don't see the power of the Holy Spirit in the transformed life. Now, as I look back at Chuck Colson, and I'm only using him as my example now, when he was in prison, he is now with the Holy Spirit inside of him, not much out there to mentor him. The Holy Spirit through here, the Word of God began to transform him and how much it will teach him. One of the ministries I am so um, amazed with that has changed my mind for a long time has been the Gideons. I'd like to tell you why. I grew up in a system that in order to give the gospel, you probably need to use seven steps, a gospel track, make sure it's all this way. And if you do it just like this, that's how a person gets saved. Any other ways, it might be suspect. Now, it was always by faith alone. And so when I heard about the Gideon ministry, they often leave Bibles here and Bibles there and prisons and and you know, motel rooms and hotel rooms and all of that. I would go to a Gideon meeting because they'd have these pastor's things. And I would come and I would sit there and I would hear these guys get up and give these testimonies. I was a broken man ready to commit suicide. I didn't know what to do. And I wanted a piece of paper to write my wife a note to tell her I'm done with myself right here. And I opened the drawer and there's a Gideon Bible. And I don't know, I just picked it up. And I just started reading in here. And I got to John. And I heard that if I would believe in Christ, I could have eternal life. And I trusted Christ as my Savior. 
That, to me, is a supernatural work of God. I've heard that over and over and over. Now, I'm not a fruit inspector. I don't know all the little things at that moment in that motel room. But I do know this. That man or woman can say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. That's a miraculous work of God apart from legalism. And so, again, legalism blinds us to the miraculous work of God because legalism, it's all about man doing something that man thinks he's got to do often leaving God totally out. The second is legalism binds us to the meticulous rules of man. Very similar. Legalism binds us to the meticulous rules of man. When you look at this passage, what were the Jews upset over? They weren't so upset over the fact that Jesus was breaking the Sabbath. I think they were more upset because Jesus was breaking their Sabbath. In other words, the way they interpreted it, the way they thought it should be done, which is how can you pick up your mallet and walk. It's the Sabbath and you shouldn't do that. Now I'd like to maybe go over your notes for a moment here because some of you are asking maybe, how would I be like a Pharisee? In other words, could I be putting legalism on someone else? Could I be living a legalistic life myself and not really know it? So if you would look at your notes here, let me go over them quickly. We're acting like a Pharisee when we hold on to traditions above the purposes of God. When we hold on to traditions above the purposes of God. In other words, when God tells us to do something in his word and all of a sudden it begins to morph and we now feel like in order to do his word we've got to do it a certain way that some great Christian author would tell us to do it. All of a sudden we begin to hold up these great Christian authors, whether they're male or female, and they become the ones that we read. They're the ones that teach us how to live this. All of a sudden the truths of God's word are there as foundational, but now we've lifted what the other people say and we quote more what others are saying or doing than really what God's word has to say. They become our spiritual guru. Some of you follow radio preachers, television preachers, male or female. Some of you have a whole set of books. And many times he might be right. And all I would like to tell you is this, is be very, very careful that we don't quote other writers far more than we understand and quote the inerrant word of God. Holding traditions above the purposes of God. Traditions above the purposes of God. Next, keeping spiritual laws or rules without recognizing the spiritual meaning behind them. Without recognizing the spiritual meaning behind them. Let me see if I can explain it this way. You will often hear, probably in this church, the importance of abiding in God's word and reading scripture. We know that we should read it every day. We know we should study it often so we'd be approved a workman that needs not to be ashamed, the whole tenant of Awana, etc. We want to teach God's word. And so all of a sudden, watch this now, we begin committed to a reading through the Bible in a year program or some other reading program or we get a little devotional out here and we're reading through all of this kind of stuff here. But at the end of our reading time, we walk away and if a couple hours later we were to ask ourselves, what did we just read? We probably won't remember it. So what's happened now is that we've gone through the motion of doing what God had to say, but he really didn't just say, open up your Bible and read words. He was talking about taking God's word and abiding in it. That means living in it and then taking God's word and, watch this, letting God's word so live within us that it changes us. We could talk about going to church. The Bible says not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And we should meet together more often, not find every excuse not to be in church or to use other things to keep us away. And all of a sudden, now we've got a priority here. We we promised to do this, but what about that? So pretty soon we're going to church out of outside duty. And so now we come and we can say, well, I went to church. And we ask ourselves, all right, 
when you were at church, what did you get out of the message that changed your life? Whether it was a Sunday school class, a connection group, or a morning worship service. Did God speak to you? It was God's word. It will not return unto him void. It was preached accurately. Were you leaning into this with a teachable heart? What did he teach you at? If not, you just did church. You went home. You were no different than if you didn't come. Secondly, you might come to church and say, I got a great deal out of church, but church isn't a place where we consume. If it was, there's going to be times that I will not always hit a home run when I preach. There'll be a time that a Sunday school teacher may not be right on the mark or speak so interestingly to you. And you'll say, I didn't get much out of this church today. I didn't like the music. The sound wasn't really good. And all of a sudden, now you're judging this and you're saying, you know what? I have to find a church where I can learn more. I, can, I need a deeper church. I need a wider church. I need a funnier church. I need a church more serious. I need this music, that music. All of a sudden, we become a consumer. And so we go to those churches and at the end of the day we feel good but it hasn't changed us because part of going to church is not only from what I can get. Part of coming to church is when I get out of the car, who can I encourage? Whose burden can I bear? Whose load can I lift? So I've come, so maybe some Sundays I might not always intake but I also might want to give out. And then some churches, sometimes I'll come to the fellowship together and I won't be able to give anything out. I'm not feeling really good. I can't do much. I've had a tough week. But I've come just to worship. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. And I'm doing it while my brothers and sisters in Christ on this journey of life. So there's a difference between just doing all the outward and we miss all the inward here. So keeping the laws without recognizing the real meaning behind what we're supposed to do. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Thank you.